Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and all who practice it have good understanding. His praise endures forever. Amen? This is Psalm 111. Wasn't it great just to, just like that psalm said, to be in the, the congregation of, of the redeemed, um, to gather around the truth of God's word, especially in, a, in an age and time of, full of misinformation and disinformation and, and conspiracy and half-truth and outright lie and confusion and mistrust, doubt, the unknown, to be here on a Sunday morning as the people of God to look into his word that doesn't change and is always true. It's so refreshing for me. This is like an oasis every week just to come and be with God's people and sit under something that's a rock. It's not conjecture. Um, it's not mystery, uh, though it is mysterious, isn't it, in, in so many ways. Uh, but it's unchanging. Just like we just sang, by his blood and in his name, in his freedom, I am free. And we celebrate that together this morning. Well, join with me in prayer as we get into it. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the immovable rock that is your covenant. And thank you for the clarity of your word, God. There's so many conflicting voices today, and there's so much tension and contention, um, so much ugliness and name-calling and rioting and uh, just humanity seemingly at its worst. But we have a God who does not change and a God who has given us a clear and understandable word. We can actually know God. Thank you, Lord, for condescending in that way and um, we pray this morning we would, we would stand together uh, in admiration and awe and, and in submission to your word. Challenging though it is, as was prayed or mentioned earlier, um, may we be changed this morning, Lord. We come here for you. We know that our hearts are darkened and our minds are dimmed, and we need reform. We need redemption, though we have been redeemed. We know the work's not done yet, God, so continue it today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, this morning we are going to be in First uh, Peter chapter 2. And I'm told that there are two things that polite society does not talk about. And they are religion and politics. Someone forgot to tell St. Peter. Um, and I don't care if that's what they say. We're going to be talking about religion and politics this morning. And, and government or politics 
we'll consider it to be government, can kind of be looked at in, in two ways. And one way I think is very dangerous and very shaky. And unfortunately, it's the way that the world is moving. And that is that, that government is really merely a human institution, that, it, that it's, it's imagined by the people who adhere to it, that the people who have power have it because we say that they have it. And it's sort of a, a matter of, of um, <clears throat> convenient consensus that we get together and say, this is the people that we are going to follow and these are the laws that we are going to decide are important. And it can kind of end there. It's kind of like money, where all of us work a job. Most of us anyways work a job. A household gets income somehow. And we have these paper bills in circulation and metal coins. And we just have kind of decided this has value. So I'm going to sacrifice a third of my life in an office or wherever so that I can produce this stuff that people just say has value. So then I can go to the store and give them this thing that we say has value. And then they give me stuff that it actually has value, which is food. Um, and that's how life goes. But in reality, like there, if, if, we, if we dwell on it uh, truly, it's an illusion. Money, currency has value because we say it has value. I mean, even, even down to gold, right? I mean, there's something to be said about the scarcity of a thing that makes it valuable. But at the end of the day, you can't eat gold, right? That's not going to do you any good if you're on an island by yourself. Even bricks, of, bricks and bricks of gold is not going to do you any good. So there's these things that we've kind of developed as a society that help society run. But we can look at it as merely a human institution or merely a human invention. Um, but I think it's very shaky ground because, again, at the end of the day, it really only has the value that we say that it has value, that we, we say that it has. So what happens when the government goes sideways and all of a sudden it's not helpful to its people? What do you, what do, you do then? This is, this is what people have said it has value and has authority, and therefore it, it does, right? How do, you, how do you get out from under that? Um, the, the general consensus is acceptable until government behaves badly. And government throughout the history of time has been the biggest oppressor of people bar none, right? Individuals do horrible things to each other, we all know that. And really a government is just an organization of individuals and so their, their organized ability to do horrible things to people is just amplified by the fact that they're organized together. Now government of course can be a blessing as well, which we'll get into. Um, but it's certainly not without its liability. And Samuel was aware of this, if you'll remember back in 1 Samuel, when the Israelites are asking for a king. This is thousands of years ago, and, and I would contend that not much has changed. Samuel says this in 1 Samuel um, chapter 8. He says, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He's, he's, he's warning the Israelites. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and some to plow his ground and reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your grain. I wish that's all it were and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and he'll put them to his work. He'll take a tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. <laughs> and they said, bring it on, that's what we want. And here we are today. 
So it's either a mere human institution uh, or it's a, a divine ordination on the other side. Like we said, government can do horrible things, but government can be a great blessing as well. Is God involved in politics? Is God working in the affairs of man? Is God sovereign over the office of Joe Biden or Gavin Newsom or any politicians that are in power? All human government manifests imperfection. It does. I mean, again, it's nothing more than organized individuals. And if individuals are imperfect, the government will also be imperfect. It is not greater than the sum of its parts in many ways. It's imperfect, yet law and order is the central pillar of ever, any civilized society. If people don't obey the law, there will be no order. Government can be a great blessing upon people as well. And in fact, government is ordained by God. It is not a mere human institution. It is not just a consensed, a consensed imagining of the populace where we say, we need to install someone, they're going to be in charge, we imbue them with power because we can. The world may view it that way, but even in the world's view of doing those things, in reality, God is the one who has ordained the powers that be. Romans 13 bears this out. It says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Now listen to this. For there is no authority except from God. Those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for no reason. He does not bear it in vain. For, again, he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in submission not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes to the, uh, for the authorities or ministers of God. This keeps you just... This, Keeps being repeated over and over again. Attending to this very thing, pay to all what is owed them, taxes to whom taxes is owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, and respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. And Jesus himself reiterated this in his, his uh, position before Pilate, right? Pilate is, is frustrated because Jesus is quiet before him. And he's like, hey, don't you know I have the authority to kill you or let you go? And Jesus said, you would, have no you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. So this is Jesus' perspective as well. Without the fear of God and the biblical understanding that all authority, all human authority throws ultimately from his throne, human society will ever tend towards chaos and rebellion and godless utopia does not exist. It doesn't. And that, I mean, the, the kingdoms of the earth are after, in large part, a godless, a godless utopia. And without ultimate authority, all lesser authorities are at best nothing, again, but mutually agreed upon consensus. There has to be something underneath, a universal authority underneath all other authorities that makes the whole system work. Our founding fathers actually 
understood this, at least many of them. You may have heard a quote from John Adams says, Our Constitution, speaking of the Constitution of the United States of America, was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to govern for the governance of any other. Albert Einstein also said, Those who believe that politics and religion don't mix understand neither. On some, on some level, separation of, of church and state is actually a blessing for the church, right? We don't want to have a government dictating what we can do and what we can believe and, and how we can go about our business. We've suffered a lot of that in the last year or so. But there is a real sense that religion, the divine, plays into our ability and willingness to submit to authorities that he has put in place. Anything that's just imagined by man can just be unimagined by man. And unfortunately, human authorities are constantly trying to throw God off. But as I see it anyways, when they, when they work to throw off God, they seek to wield more power than they've been granted. And at the same time, they undermine their ability to hold on to that very power. And likewise, society, when they follow leaders without reference to an authority, without reference to the ultimate authority of God, they not only entrust their well-being into frail and fallen and evil men without recourse, they also open themselves up, as we read, to the judgment of God. Because ultimately, the government that we have, the rules that we have, the law that we have is from God. So when we violate them, we violate him and incur his, his judgment. So, with that in mind, let's stand together. If you haven't already turned to 1 Peter chapter 2, you may do that, or it'll be up on the screen as well. But we'll stand in, in reverence and fear of God's word. And we'll be reading 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13 through 17. And it says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word for us this morning. So if you're following along in the outline, we're going to start looking at, by looking at the Christian's responsibility. And this is uh, verses 13 through 14. We have an instruction to be subject to every human institution. It says emperor, governors. Later in the book, he also talks about slaves being submissive to their masters and wives being submissive to their husbands. And we know elsewhere that children are likewise to be submissive to their parents. So there's these human institutions, as Peter puts it, that God has set up in various spheres of life. It's, it's not just a matter of submitting to government. That's not what it says. It's human institutions. And the human institution is more than just the emperor. It says it's his governors. So by extension or analogy today, we can say the president, governors, county authorities, police, 
these systems, these human institutions that have been instituted by God and not just by the imaginings of men are to be uh, respected and we are to be subject for the Lord's sake to them. Well, I think most, I don't want to make myself very different because I'm probably not, but growing up I was I was into punk rock music. I still really like punk rock music. And punk rock music is all about sticking it to the man and fighting the power. So I read this and I just bristle. I'm like, ooh, I'm not going to be subject to every human, every human institution, really every human institution. What is, what are you saying, Peter? But we remember this this letter there's some debate as to whether or not peter actually wrote this book and when it was written and things but if we take sort of the orthodox view which i would that this is written by peter it, it was written what's one of the earliest books written it was written during the reign of emperor nero i'm not going to go into the details but probably most of us are aware at least somewhat as to what kind of a guy nero was and some of the horrible things that he did especially to the church and peter is saying to everyone to honor the emperor as supreme. There's probably people who read this letter who had family members who were killed by Nero. And Peter's saying, be subject to him and honor him. It's so offensive. And yet there it is. But we have a litany of examples throughout the Bible that shed light on this so that we can say, Confidently that the, this is not a universal call to obedience in every and any circumstance, no matter what the person in power says to do or not to do, right? Whether it's Daniel being unwilling to bow down to Darius's statue that he sets up in, uh, in Daniel chapter 6, or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right, in the fiery furnace, where they're unwilling to uh, pray to <clears throat> uh, Nebuchadnezzar. Or Rahab in Jericho, who lies to the officials who come and try and find the, these Israelites who snuck into, the, snuck into uh, Jericho to check it out. Straight up lies to them um, and is later commended by God for doing so. Or John the Baptist, who condemns Herod's uh, uh, incestuous relationship, ends up getting killed for it. Stephen, who gives a uh, defense of the gospel before the high priest and is stoned for doing so. Or the many, many examples that we've seen as we were kind of going through Acts of Paul just running for his life everywhere he goes. It wasn't because he was universally obeying everything that the powers were saying at the time. That's not why he was in trouble, right? He was in trouble because he put a fortune teller out of business and he burned magicians' books and he uh, put idol manufacturers out of business by turning people's hearts away from false gods. So there are many occasions that we can look at where this universal submission to government is maybe not so universal. So what do we do then when we're commanded to obey the government on one hand, but we have a very imperfect government uh, that we're being asked to obey. What do we do when, when God requires something that government prohibits? Or what do we do when God prohibits something that government requires? What are, what are we to do? 
And beyond that, there's further the matter of conscience. It's not always as cut and dry as God says that we're not supposed to pray to you, Nebuchadnezzar, so we're not going to pray to you. It's very, very simple, cut and dry. What happens when more complicated things come up related to conscience? Because conscience, conscience is not irrelevant. Martin Luther said to act against conscience is neither right nor safe. And in Romans, we read more about uh, conscience as well. It says in Romans 14, 14, I know, that I, I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. And later in Romans 14, it says, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So it's not as simple as maybe we would like it to be. So what do we do when, particularly in the church, when there's conflict between what I am willing to fight the government on and what you are not willing to fight the government on because of these matters of, of conscience? You know, we have, there's no shortage of examples in the last year or so with all the COVID business, with masking and quarantining and vaccining, and Christians are landing on different, different places in that regard, or the legalization of of marijuana, at least at the state level, decriminalized federally, whatever that means, um, the legitimization of homosexual relationships and homosexual marriage, or the accommodation of gender dysphoria in sports and in locker rooms and in bathrooms, the subsidizing by insurance of, of abortion procedures and forcing companies to pay for benefits that include the ability for people to get abortions, and all this, just the morass of confusion that gets laid at our feet as Christians that we have to respond to that's not always as cut and dry as worship Nebuchadnezzar, but by degrees it's complicated. How do we deal with that as Christians? I think to a large degree it's also complicated by the democracy that we live in also. Peter's writing from an autocratic society where there is an emperor and whatever the emperor says is what happens. That's the law of the land, there is no voting, um, you have very little say. Whereas in a democracy, as, as in such we live now, we don't only have a responsibility to simply submit to the laws and the rulers that are, we actually have a responsibility to be a part of the lawmaking. We have a responsibility to sort of co-rule. This is a government by the people for the people. And Peter doesn't address exactly how to work that out. And so again, this is a, a matter of, of um, spectrum and degrees and some confusion that we need to weigh and work through um, because our context is quite different than, than it was in the first century. Christians will not always agree in identifying conflicts between the law of God and the law of the land. But... We must agree that when there is a true conflict, we have to side with God. That's something we can't disagree on, right? When there is a true conflict, we must insist on obeying God. William Barclay's commentary on this section I wanted to quote says, There may be times that the Christian will fulfill his highest duty and obligation to the state by refusing to obey the state and by insisting on obeying God. And yet, when the government goes sideways, as they often do, and require things that they ought not to require that contradict the law of God, we say with Peter, we must obey God rather than man. That's the direction of the church. 
but how do we do it? I think that's what's instructive here in, in this passage in, in 1 Peter 2. 1 Peter 2, 18 and 19, it's not central to our text today, but it says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. You're supposed to do it with all respect. And even in that, we know further that this is not a universal call to obedience because why would a slave suffer for being universally obedient? No, no slave master is going to beat his slave for doing a particularly good job or working very, very hard at whatever he had been asked to do. The assumption here is that the slave has not submitted because of some violation of righteousness that's being required of him. And yet, he does it with all respect. 1 Peter 3, 14 and 15 says, But if you, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, and if you're filling in the outline, do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ uh, may be put to shame. So we're to do it with all gentleness and respect. We're to do it while, while doing good. There are also examples in Scripture where we see this honoring and respect of authority even when maybe the authority is, is not all that respectable. I think about uh, David and Saul, right? And I think in the last some months we had a sermon about this um, where David's in a cave with his men and they're, they know that Saul is hunting their army and David finds Saul in the cave and he sneaks over very slyly and he just cuts off the corner of Saul's robe without, no, without Saul noticing and then he, he leaves um, could have enacted vengeance on Saul and, and killed him in that moment, but, but doesn't. The story from 1 Samuel 24 reads, um, this is David talking, Here is the day of which uh, the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give the enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe, and afterward David's heart struck him because he had cut off the corner of Saul's robe. This is the man who's trying to kill him. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing that he is the Lord's anointed. So David has this very respectful, honoring position towards Saul, who's the king, he's God's anointed, even though Saul is out to kill David. There's a story that I learned in studying for this that is, was interesting. I don't know if any of you have ever heard of a guy um, named uh, Genesis. He was uh, in Rome, it was about, I think, 300 AD or so, and Genesis was a playwright and an actor. And today he's venerated by the Catholics as the patron saint of the arts. And Genesis was not a Christian, and uh, he was going to be entertaining 
uh, Emperor Diocletian. And he knew that Diocletian hated Christians. Diocletian killed Christians on the regular. And so Genetius thinks I'm going to write a play to lampoon Christians for for, uh, (laughs) Diocletian when he gets here. So uh, Genetius does some research, and he decides to pretend to be a Christian. And he makes his way into the fellowship of the church as a... uh, as a Christian, although he was not, he pretended to be, sort of to learn how Christians did things so that he could write this very hilarious play. And the Christians, skeptical, because they kind of had to be careful around those times, end up believing him and start giving him education leading towards baptism. There was a process for uh, discipling converts before they had been baptized and getting them ready for baptism. So uh, Genetius, is, he's, he's going through with this and kind of chuckling under his breath as he learns about all these funny Christian superstitions and things. So then he writes this play. And in the play, he, he himself is an actor, and he's playing a sick person who's begging to be baptized because they're about to die, and he's desperate to be baptized. And Diocletian is there in the auditorium, and... Um, Genetius is laying down pretending to be um, a sick man wanting to be baptized and they take water you know, and it's all done in a very mocking mocking tone and pour water over Genetius' head and he is converted on the spot um, he says and I don't know exactly what the, you know, where this quote comes from but what I have anyways is uh, Genetius stands up and he points to the emperor, Diocletian, and he says, I came here today to please an earthly emperor, but what I have done is to please a heavenly king. I came here to give you laughter, but what I've done is give joy to God and his angels. From this moment on, I will never mock these great mysteries again. I now know that the Lord Jesus Christ is the true God, the light, the truth and the mercy of all who receive his gift of baptism. And he says, O great emperor, believe in these mysteries. I will teach you, and you will know the Lord Jesus is the true God. But he says, O great emperor. This is how he, how he addresses the emperor, still with honor, even in the midst of this, of this interchange. Now, it did not go well for Genetius. He was tortured and killed. Um, but he was free. Like, God does not count sins against Genetius, even though he was this horrible guy who was lampooning Christianity. Um, his sins were forgiven, he was baptized, and, and he was killed and went home to be with Jesus. Just an amazing story. But the honor that is shown the emperor, even by this guy in 300 AD, is an example for how we are to, in, to uh, interact with the governing authorities of our day as well. When we live this way, we're not, we're not just we're not bootlickers. Um, we're entrusting ourselves to God. We're not entrusting ourselves to wicked men. Peter says this as well in the same, same book here in chapter 5. It says, After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. It's Christ himself who will do that. Next section is the Christian's reason, and this gets, uh, or, or rationale, um, this gets to sort of what we, what we opened with, which is that 
government is not just a, an illusion, but there's a reason uh, why it exists, and it's undergirded by divine authority. Government is God's. Government is God's. It belongs to him. It is by him. And as citizens of heaven, it could be very easy for us to ignore that and think, I have an eternal heaven, an eternal resting place, an eternal kingdom that I'm moving towards. It's an eternal kingdom. I'm here for 70, maybe 80 years, 90 years. Why bother listening to these rules? This is a, this is a drop in the bucket in terms of uh, what I have to enjoy throughout all of eternity. So it'd be easy for us to ignore the authorities and to listen simply to God's authority and thumb our nose at any other authority, but that's not our instruction. Government is God's. Remember in Romans 13, we read this earlier, right? That there's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. And throughout this section, 13 through 14, there's reason after reason after reason for why we are to submit to the authorities. It's undergirded by theology. Theology is so practical. I was listening to uh, a, a critique of, of, of a book recently. Um, it was a, a book on critical race theory, and it was by, this critique was done very, very respectfully and thoughtfully by Kevin DeYoung. And uh, then, then this week I'd heard a, a response from the authors of this book, and their, their critique of Kevin DeYoung's critique was that it is too theological. Theology, whether you recognize it or not, is a part of what you think and how you act and what you do as a Christian. We have God reasons for the things that we do. And this section of, of Scripture is saturated with theology. In verse 13, it says, for the Lord's sake. In verse 14, it says, sent by him. These authorities are sent by God. Verse 15, this is the will of God. Verse 16, live as servants of God. Verse 17, fear God. So in the midst of these practical instructions about how we're to interact with government, constantly being undergirded by God. This is why we do things. Government is not merely a human illusion. It is a divine ordination. And I've, I've always been amazed for many reasons, but why so many governments on earth despise Christianity and outlaw Christianity. It's like Christianity is a boon for, for, good, for good government. Like our book literally says to obey the government. Like if you, people throughout you know, even now atheists and other people who don't know God will say that the Bible was, was created simply for the controlling of people. You know, that this is, this is a book that was written by men in order to control men. And early in human history, that was totally true. I mean, the Catholic Church had a, a stranglehold on the words of this book. You couldn't read it as a layperson. And they did use it to control people and to get money out of them and all, all sorts of ungodly things. It has been used by that in that way which just proves that it can be used that way. Like, so it's always been a mystery to me why, why governments uh, crack down on Christians. Like, have you read the book? <laughs> We're, it's telling us to listen to you and obey you. It's a boon for good government. But anyway, I, di I digress. Um, obedient, obedient living uh, adorns the gospel. We also we, we read this in verse um, 
verse 15. But by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Titus 2, 7 through 10 reads, Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of our Savior. Obedient living adorns the gospel. I thought it was interesting here in, in verse 15. Again, Peter's saying this is one of the reasons for obeying is that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. And I thought, how is doing good going to be attractive to people who do not do good? I don't think this is going to work, Peter. And yet, in verse 12, I think it's instructive that we hear, uh, he says... Keep your conduct honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. It was like on the, the coming near of the Lord. So even though your behavior, your good behavior, is probably not admired by people who riot and burn down cities, and yet on the day of visitation, there's a clarity that comes and people can see what's been done in righteousness when they repent and see things clearly. I had, I had an example of this in my own life. Uh, when I was in fifth grade, uh, I was very mean to a particular student that um, I lived in the neighborhood with him. Um, he was not real smart. He could not read well. He had issues with his teeth. Um, and I was, I was mean. I was just not a nice child, um, as many aren't, but maybe I was particularly cruel. Um, and I would, I would just rail on this kid in class. And I'd just, for the whole class to hear, I'd say rude comments when he couldn't read a word. I'd chuckle about him, and uh, I just made fun of him. And I remember one day, the teacher, uh, his name was Mr. Day, um, he had had enough, I guess, and he sent me outside. And I remember he came out, and rebuked, I mean, I don't, I don't know that he was a Christian, I don't think he was, but rebuked me in such a way that, that opened my eyes. It was like what was said here in, in verse 12, like on the day of visitation. Like I had a moment of visitation at the rebuke of this fifth grade teacher. And he's like, you know what, Joseph never says anything back to you. He is never mean to you. Why are you so cruel to him? And it just cut me. And in that moment, I was like, all of his silence for the few years that I had known him became as thunder. And I could see clearly in that moment, like, I should not treat this person that way. And it changed me. And so even in, the, in, in you know, what I valued up until that moment was comedy at his expense. But after that moment, I valued what he valued and I saw the good and the righteous behavior that, that he had exhibited in the, in the face of my cruelty. I think that that's what, what Peter's after here. And it's how we ought to live. Live righteously so that on the day of visitation, wicked people will, will glorify God. They will glorify God on the day of their visitation. 
Verse 16 has an interesting juxtaposition. It says that we are supposed to live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. And the word servant, bondservant, oftentimes in our translations of the Bible is not as faithful to the true word in Greek, which is doulos, which is slave. So in reality, probably what this should read, or how this should be translated, is live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as slaves. <laughs> live as people who are free. Live as slaves. Freedom, I think in general, this is something I like to like to talk about, I think it's a very interesting concept. And Caleb mentioned earlier in, in uh, opening, up, opening us up in worship. We like to think of freedom as a, as, a, as a binary situation where either you are free or you are not free. And in one sense, no one is free because none of us are God. In reality, I, I would contend that God is the only free person in all of the universe. I am bound by the physics of earth that God has created, right? I am not free to jump to the moon right now. I cannot do it. I'm not free. I am bound by my, my finite reality. Now, God could do that, right? Because God is the only one who is truly, truly free. Uh, Christoph Koch, who's a, a neuroscientist, um, said, freedom is always a question of degree rather than an absolute good that we do or do not possess, and that's borne out here in this passage, right? Where on the one hand, we're free, and on the other hand, we're slaves. And Peter is saying, of the freedom that you have in Christ, which is the greatest freedom that, that, that there is, temper that freedom, make it obedient to Christ, use your freedom such that it adorns the gospel, as we, as we read, that those who uh, receive visitation will glorify God on that day. We don't, we're not supposed to use our freedoms, it says, as a cover-up for evil. So on the spectrum of freedom that we enjoy, it seems that giving up freedom is maybe the freest thing that we could do. And doesn't Christ exemplify that for us, right? Was, anyone ever, was any man ever freer than Christ? I, I don't think so. And yet he gave up his freedom that he could give freedom to others. An interesting, an interesting paradox. I would say that only God is truly free and that man is never freer than when he is with God. The Psalms say that blessed is the man whose sins are not counted against him. He who the Lord sets free is free indeed, free from sin. If God has forgiven a man, no enemy can enslave him. And on the flip side of that, if any man is an enemy of God, he can never truly be free. And that's why the rich in this present age are under uh, great danger. And that there are many, uh, there, there are, I sure hope many, there are certainly those in North Korea who know Christ who are freer than the richest man in America. because God has set them free. God calls us to relinquish our freedoms that actually enslave us. We're not supposed to use our freedoms as a cover-up for evil.
So, the government is God's. Obedient living adorns the gospel. And man is never freer than when he is with God, when he's been forgiven by God. So, in all of this, what is the call? There's a lot of, of uh, exceptions, I think, that we've talked about. And there's always a, a danger in explaining the meaning away from a text. We certainly don't want to make Peter say the opposite of what he is saying. Uh, we don't want him to, we don't want to explain so much of the meaning away that really at the end of the day, Peter is not saying anything at all and this passage doesn't even need to be here. So what is he saying? In verse 17, I think is helpful for this to sort of distill, uh, distill down the, um, the exceptions. How ought we to live? It says in verse 17, honor everyone. It's the opening clause here. Honor everyone. At the time that this was written, between a quarter and 40% of people were slaves. And Peter's saying, honor them. Honor everyone. And I wonder if that's how we approach people today, or we still regard them according to the flesh. How do you treat people at your workplace? How do you treat the teller at the bank? How do you treat... The person uh, doing checking checking out your groceries at the grocery store, um, just a I think something that that's nice to do. Maybe you already do it. Something that I endeavor to do imperfectly. When people are wearing a name tag, call them by their name. You know, show them honor in that way. These are not nameless servants for you to simply suck dry, right? But thank you, Sarah. If you see that they're having a name tag, have a good day, Sarah. Like. Give them some humanity. You know, I think it's easy in our busy lives to look at everyone as transparent around us, but we're supposed to honor everyone. Show honor to people. You know, maybe even go to this. I know a, a man who I have a lot of respect for. Um, it's, well, anyway, Carl Fletcher, my a pastor from a previous life. Um, he will intentionally shop at the same places just so he can rub shoulders with people on a regular, on a regular basis. I think that that's so beautiful and intentional. Um, an intentional way of, of getting to know people and to show, show honor to people. It goes on to say, love the brotherhood. And I would say that, that this loving the brotherhood is a step up from the honor that we show to everyone. That this, this uh, loving the brotherhood includes honoring. So you're going to honor, if, if we're supposed to honor everyone, the brotherhood would be included in that. So we honor the brotherhood, but we also love the brotherhood. And we know that the love that we have together as a church also adorns the gospel, right? That people know that we are Christians by our love, and it doesn't stop there. That's what people like, like to stop it there. It says that they, they will know that we are Christians by our love for one another. We are to love the brotherhood. And the third one is to fear God. And this fear of God um, is not terror. It's not um, the kind of fear that you get when you watch a scary movie. Um, this word fear has a connotation in of respect and awe and reverence and wonder. And that's how we're supposed to treat God. And just like, just like loving the brotherhood includes honor, uh, this fear of God includes both honor and love. Honor, love, and fear God. And there's a lot in Peter's letter to fear. I mean, he's writing to people who are being persecuted in the worst ways by, by uh, the emperor. And a lot of his letter is talking about how to live life under the constant fear of death and not painless death. There's a lot to fear in this letter, and yet the exhortation here is to, to fear God. 
And the other three depend upon that fear of God. The honoring of the emperor, the, the submission to authority, all comes under this superior command to fear God. In fact, we do those other things because of our fear of God. It is on that fear of God that these other three commands depend. I love what Augustine says. I'm sure you've heard it. it says, he said, love God and do whatever you want. And I, I, I love that, the simplicity of that instruction because, of course, if you love God, you're not going to do things that God would not love, right? Your, your affection for God is what drives everything you do. And likewise here, your affection or fear for God drives how you interact with the government that God has put in place. So fear God. Fourthly, and comes in last here, it says honor the emperor. This is the same word that he uses earlier for honor everyone. So if we're supposed to honor everyone, why are we now saying to honor a specific person? It's like, honor the Rudels and honor Kayla. Like, he's reiterating, right, something that is not going to come naturally and probably wouldn't just be assumed, especially, again, people in the first century under Emperor Nero. He ends with, honor the emperor. In the midst of this honoring, we do, however, need to be able to wisely distinguish between the office and the officer. That we're supposed to honor the office of emperor, the office of president, the office of governor, the office of police chief, whatever it may be. It's not the same as honoring Nero, per se. Honor does not equal approval. You can honor someone without giving approval to what they do. It, respect does not equal approbation. Submission does not equal, as we've said, universal, unquestioning uh, obedience. That's not what submission means. And esteem does not equal admiration. So we can honor the authorities that are divinely over us without approving of the murder of unborn children. We can, we can do that. And the, the challenge goes further than, than simply not dishonoring, which is where my, my mind wants to go. It's like, yeah, that video of Joe Biden tripping over the teleprompter, I shouldn't be laughing at that. That's dishonoring. The command is actually to honor, to show honor. There's an active command here to show honor to the people who are in authority. We all have to work out what that looks like for us. So, in closing, are you tired of holding your tongue and are you grieved by the decisions of your government? Are you frustrated by what you see on the news and are you frustrated by our citizens' reaction to what they deem to be unjust? Are you angered by the seeming consensus of society today against you? Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Entrust your soul to a faithful creator while doing good. 1 Peter 3, 10-12 says, Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil.
And the flip side of that is, is a question, are you, are you unfree today? Are you unforgiven by God? There is no one less free than the enemy of God. You may not only be a slave of the systems of this world, you may further be under the condemnation of a holy God who does not let sin go. But Jesus offers to set you free. So come and be unbound by sin, which is the real enemy. And human institutions may, through the course of time, try to unjustly, unjustly control us, but God can justly send you to hell for eternity. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. We'll end with one of, I think, the most succinct and maybe one of my most favorite verses from the Bible. It comes from the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes 12, 13 through 14 says, the end, the, the end of the matter, this is the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And that includes the way that we interact with the authority that he has put in place, the government. All right, let's pray. Lord of lords and King of kings, we're glad that that is true. We look around and see injustice uh, all around us, and yet you, you remind us um, that when we see injustice, not to be marvel, not to marvel over it, but to recognize that everyone is under an authority. There are lesser authorities and grander authorities, and ultimately, God, you sit above every authority, and you are a perfect judge. And on the one hand, we long for your return, God, because we know that that, that is when righteousness and justice will reign supreme that government will finally be perfect because it will be a, a beneficent theocracy where Jesus Christ is the king of the universe. How the church longs for that day. And yet we know, God, that your patience means salvation for those who don't yet know you. So help us, too, to be patient and to partner uh, with you in the mission of the gospel to see sinners saved. And help us, God, in the midst of difficult days under puzzling governments and foolish decisions to honor the emperor and to be subject to every human institution that we might adorn the gospel so that on the day of visitation, people would see the good works of your church and glorify God. All of our lives is about the glory of God. And this is how we do it according to your word. Thank you for uh, your church, Lord. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for setting us free and I pray that you would change us and challenge us with this word. In Jesus' name, amen.